0: It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into mysteries about true histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your pods.
1: I often find myself teetering on this edge of if I were to go by the DSM-5, which is what I'm supposed to do, this this girl does not meet criteria for an autism spectrum disorder, or she's sort of like, like what you said with Asher, she's kind of on the borderline. But then there's the question of, is it valuable to give the person a label or not? And sometimes it's really valuable to have that label, and sometimes it's not.
0: Welcome to the Tilt Parenting Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and today I'm talking with Melissa Neff, a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Missoula, Montana, in the U.S., who specializes in conducting psychological evaluations with children ages 6 to 18 and adults. A lot of Melissa's practice focuses on helping parents figure out what's going on with their children and diagnosing things like ADHD and autism. Although she shared with me that one of her favorite aspects of her practice lately is working with girls who are on the spectrum. There are so many things I could have talked about with Melissa, but for today's episode, we focused our conversation on the diagnostic process what it involves and when and how parents can take the steps they need to pursue a diagnosis, as well as the pros and cons of getting a diagnosis and more specifically of having one or more labels attached to a child, both in their educational journey, as well as their lives as they grow into adults. This is one of those packed conversations with lots of great insights. And I love how Melissa's passion for her work shines through. I hope you enjoy it. And before I get to the show, if you're not already signed up for our Differently Wired 7-Day Challenge, I would love for you to join us. When you sign up for the challenge, you'll get an email every day for 7 days featuring a tweak you can make in your day-to-day life to change the way you think, feel, and experience raising your Differently Wired child. You'll also get a downloadable workbook to use as you go through it, and you'll be invited to a closed Facebook group just for people who've gone through or are currently doing the challenge. Oh, and also, it's free. If you want to join us, you can sign up online at tiltparenting.com slash 7day. And now let's get on with the show. Hey, Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you.
1: I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, we have a lot to talk about. We were just prepping for this. We're like, oh my gosh, this could be a mini series, but we'll see what we can get through today. Today, we're going to be talking all about diagnoses, getting them, how they're done, and lots of other stuff. And- Before we even get into that, I just want to even touch upon the fact that it can be kind of confusing for parents to even know if getting a diagnosis is something they need to do. Mm -hmm. That's something I get a lot of questions from parents, actually. And I know, especially with differently wired kids who are kind of flying under the radar, or maybe they're not standing out so much, the Mm -hmm. pediatrician may not have any clue there's anything going on. I know that our pediatrician was like, no, this is all within the range of normal and (laughs) <laughs> Even when I tried to describe things that were really tough or seemed, uh, you know, that they were very different from our friends' experiences. And it was ultimately a friend who pulled me aside, someone who had a degree in child development who said, I think you need a little more information here. There's something going on. And and that, of course, isn't an easy conversation for a friend to have, but... It's definitely not. No. And I'm glad she, she did that or it might have been a few more years till we finally got around to that. So who is usually the one suggesting the assessment? So does it that recommendation usually come from a teacher or from a pediatrician? Or is there harm in waiting too long to do this or harm in doing it too early? Like, how do people first begin to engage with you?
1: Great question. And I think a lot of different sort of spider webs of answers there. I would say that in terms of the referral sources, so I'm in private practice in Missoula, Montana, and so I get my referrals. I don't I don't advertise. I get my referrals from other therapists. I get my referrals from pediatricians as well, of course. Sometimes parents that I've worked with refer their friends um, because they know they're having trouble with their kids, or I'll get referrals from more folks in the community, like community case managers, or even sometimes teachers, or special education, paraprofessional kind of folks. We also have teams of school-based mental health folks in our schools here. And so I get a lot of referrals from them too. And so just to kind of go into your question of when is it appropriate to get an eval? I feel like, gosh, it really depends. It depends on the kind of person that you are. And it depends on how troubling the child's symptoms are in terms of how distressing they are to the child or the parent or the school or how much impairment they're causing. So there are people who are not neurotypical, you know, wandering around this earth doing amazing things who don't ever need an evaluation because they're not distressed by their symptoms or their symptoms aren't impacting their ability to do their homework or get a job or communicate with other people. You know, really, when people come to me the most is when there's some kind of problem that needs to be fixed or solved. And people usually come to me for answers. And oftentimes, I'll get referrals from folks who have been seeing this kiddo in therapy for like two, three years. And they thought it was anxiety and they thought it was depression and they thought it was trauma. And then they kind of come to me and say, this kid can't stop talking about dinosaurs. (laughs) I think (laughs) something else is going on. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a long answer to your question, but there's so many reasons. And I, I will just add that one thing that I think is really also happens is that there are a lot of people who come because they know something is a little different about them. And they really want to know why or what. Mm -hmm. And those are probably my favorite folks to work with, because they're super motivated and open to whatever I have to say.
0: And what is the age? I've asked this to other um, people I've had on the show. And I know with our experience, I think Asher was five when we first did a full assessment and mm-hmm. he got provisional diagnoses of some things, PDD, NOS, and ADHD. And we knew at that point that he was highly gifted as well. But those were pro- provisional diagnoses. And they said, come back in three years. And we did, mm-hmm. we, we ended up going to another place three years later. But is that pretty typical timeline? That's a good question. I,
1: th- I think that also varies. What I would say, um, my experience is that what we know about at least IQ testing, which is an important part of testing differently wired kits, because even though that may not, you know, sort of look at social communication issues or restrictive behaviors, it does tell us a lot about a child's ability to switch from one task to another or sort of that cognitive flexibility, executive functioning piece. And it does tell us if there's a really giant split between their verbal abilities and a lot of times with autism, you'll have verbal precociousness. And sometimes you'll have a real lack of visual spatial or abstract visual reasoning where kids can't kind of look at things and figure them out without language attached to them. So my starting point is usually at the IQ test because it gives me all of that information in addition to how quickly does a child's brain move? What is their processing speed like? How well can they pay attention? And so, with that, the research on IQ really shows that age six is about where IQ tests are considered to be the most valid indicator of what your later IQ will be. So, anything sort of before that in terms of cognitive testing is should be considered very provisional. In terms of autism, I will say that, you know, I'm not sure what types of testing and I'm curious what types of testing the Asher had. But kind of the gold standard of autism testing is the ADOS. Mm -hmm. Um, And the ADOS is an interactive test that's not just asking parents questions. It's it's one-on-one with the child, having them doing a bunch of tasks that elicit, you know, social interaction and communication demands and kind of look for those things. And you can do the ADOS as early as, I want to say, two, maybe even a little younger. Hmm. And I will say that just anecdotally, after having done assessment for, so, so I'll be going on seven years in May in private practice for assessment. I can usually spot autism in like a friend's kid or in the grocery store <laughs> or hmm. probably by one and a half, two years old, and, or at least concern for. Autism, I would never just diagnose random people. Um, <laughs> That's good. <Yeah. laughs> highly unethical. But when you start to see these patterns every day in your practice, you start to go, oh, you know, that, that child really doesn't understand that her sister is not an object and is actually a person. So I think that there are definitely signs early on, but there's so much confounding in terms of what's normal, especially if you're a first time parent and you're not sure what you're seeing. So I'll give you some examples. Tantrums and meltdowns. Mm. Tantrums are really normal for young kids, but kids that are sort of typically wired, they usually get over it pretty quickly. Sometimes when you're looking at a tantrum with autism, it is really based on a, a rigid belief that this is what was supposed to happen. And it didn't happen this way. And I'm so upset about the injustice of this not occurring. I am so upset that we didn't go down the third aisle of the grocery store because that's the way we always go. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's what the tantrum's about. And so that's different than you didn't buy me cookies in the grocery line. And I'm going to be, you know, kind of a little, you know what, for five minutes, but it's going to go away. So there's this inconsolableness, I think, sometimes to the tantrums that has to do with that cognitive rigidity. Yeah. Also, I would say sensory. I think you can spot sensory processing issues pretty early as Mm -hmm. well. You know, you you take one kid into the grocery store, you take one kid to a baseball game or a concert. And you know, if if you have the kid that's covering his ears, and screaming, and um, that's probably a good sign of sensory stuff. You know, the other piece that I see a lot in sort of these younger kids, and this is really what I'm talking about right now is really outside of what I'm doing in my practice, but just the things that I notice, because this is kind of how my brain has become wired as I do this work, there's often a lack of reciprocity that that I'll see very early on, even with milder kids on the spectrum. Where you know, let's say there's a there's a family with a kid that's one and a half and a kid that's three and a half, and if the differently wired child is three and a half, I usually find that the one and a half year old is pretending to feed me food. And is smiling when I smile. And a three and a half year old is off doing his own thing. And when the interaction occurs, it's really based on that kid's terms. We're going to play this. We're going to do this. And they're not super interested in my facial expressions, what I want to do. Of course, kids want to do what they want to do. But even in a one and a half year old, there is this incredible reciprocity Mm. in neurotypical kids that you don't always see. Hmm. It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I can tell that you love what you do. I do love what I do. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, I have so many questions for you. Let's see. I'm curious to know and again, I I tend to always go back to my own personal experience, but Sure. In terms of the testing that Asher had, I know that the second time we had him assessed it was the ADOS uh, assessment. The first time I don't recall, but it was at a clinic associated with the University of Washington and it was supposed to be for well I think just everything and I re- mm-hmm. do remember filling out a lot of forms and questionnaires and that kind of thing and they spent time with with him as well and I'm just wondering in your experience like yeah do you think that the test like how subjective is it what makes a good diagnosis, a, a diagnosis mm-hmm. that is kind of solid and you can rely on? Because I think mm-hmm. we get really confused about is this really what's going on or is this, yeah.
1: Yeah. I, to- I totally agree. I think this is an incredibly important question. I, I would say, as a psychologist, you know, we go by um, American Psychological Association ethics guidelines. And the standards for testing are that you really want to have testing that is informed by multiple people in multiple settings with multiple methods and always based on direct contact with the child. So I know that pediatricians will sometimes, you know, they'll spend 10 minutes with the kid giving shots or whatever, and they'll give the parent an ADHD questionnaire and the parent might circle all the highest numbers because their kid's driving them nuts. And that's not right psychological testing, right? Um, that's a screening. What we do here is first of all, we only work with tests that are normed and validated for and that we know measure what they're supposed to measure. So there's a lot of ethics in terms of the actual assessments that we even should be allowed to give. And so there are gold standards in the profession for sort of what those are. And those are based on, you know, lots of clinical trials with kids of different ages and different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. Gender, those kinds of things. So something like the ADOS, which is considered sort of the gold standard for testing for autism, is really great because it actually technically is supposed to have an objective scoring system. And and all of our tests really do have objective scoring systems, but there's always a person behind that objective scoring system. Mm-hmm. And so what we do here in Missoula, I actually don't do the ADOS because I'm a private practitioner working alone and I know you can do it on your own. But we have in our town more of a team approach to that where they have um, a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, and a psychologist in the room with the child. And all of them are going together to do the scoring so that it's not just one person doing the scoring. It's three people who are trying to score based on the objective, you know, sort of outlined criteria for how we're supposed to score a test. So, that I think gives more what we call convergent validity, like a lot of different people agreeing on the same thing. But you are never supposed to base a diagnosis on just one test. So, I would say so much of what's important of the testing process is not only these validated tests, but getting information from the parent or guardian, information from the teacher. Observation is really important. Sometimes I will go. And I will observe these kids at school in class in kind of a structured setting, and then I'll observe them at recess. Is anybody playing with them? Are they playing alone? Are they engaged in a repetitive behavior on the swing and they won't get off? So there's so much information, I think, in observing the child outside of some of these objective tests as well. You know the key to a lot of things, and to look for data that goes together. And if you have data that's all over the place, like teacher says, "Oh my gosh, this this kid's just defiant," and I test the kid, and he's got really severe dyslexia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I think it's easy for sort of these kids to miscue or sort of look one way when actually there's a whole lot going on. So I think in order to really have a solid assessment, you've got to have all of these pieces in place.
0: That makes total sense. Okay, very interesting. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to uplevel our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense science-backed gut and brain health recipes developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60 tilt and use code 60 tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60 tilt at greenchef.com slash 60 tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. So then you mentioned all these different factors that go into the test. And one of the things you talked about, or that have to be considered, one of those was gender. And right yes. before we started the recording, we were talking about the whole idea of girls on the spectrum. You know, I've had someone on the podcast before talking about that and how it presents differently in girls. And I, I also just shared recently on the Tilt Facebook page an article from the Atlantic about a whole generation of girls who have mm-hmm. kind of been missed getting a diagnosis for ADHD. And mm-hmm. also that that presents differently in girls. So can you talk about that the role of gender and when it comes to assessing kids? That's such a
1: sort of wide ranging question. Can I limit that to sort of autism and ADHD? Yep, perfect. Okay. So I have been seeing an enormous rise in girls with ADHD and nonverbal learning disorder in my practice, and they slip through the cracks most of the time. And I think a lot of the reason why girls on the spectrum don't get diagnosed, there's there's a lot of things sort of going into that. But one thing we know about girls' brains, they've done some brain imaging studies of girls and boys on the spectrum, and it seems like girls have a little bit better of an ability to fake social skills and Mm -hmm. to mimic social skills where oftentimes with boys, it's harder for them to, I don't know if it's having a filter or copying other people, or, or maybe there's a more staunch desire against copying. You know, a lot of, a lot of kids on the spectrum, as you know, they don't want to be anybody, but who they are Mm -hmm. and they're strong in that. And that's actually a really wonderful thing. So with girls, I think a lot of the reasons that they don't get diagnosed is that their behaviors are not as loud or prominent or dramatic. But when you spend time with girls that are on the spectrum, you can, you can see some really subtle things that sort of point to the fact that that might be an appropriate diagnosis. For example, one of the things that's been associated with, with autism in some people is what we call flat affect. So sort of not showing your emotions on your face. And what we know from research, actually, is that people with autism don't lack empathy at all. In fact, they are incredibly empathic. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't always come through on their face. Right. And they can't always read it on other people's faces. So with girls, a lot of times you'll have girls who are very quiet, and they don't outwardly show that they're distressed. And then you might find their journal and they're suicidal and depressed because nobody likes them. Mm. Or I will also see girls that have really exaggerated facial expressions that look like they're on a soap opera or something <laughs> like, you know, when they cry, they're sobbing and they, and then they look at you to make sure that you're getting that they're sad. So I think there's in autism, I think there's often a disconnect between what you're actually feeling on the inside with autism and what you're able to show on the outside. And, and so to the observer, it almost kind of looks fake or exaggerated. And, and that's a lot of what I have to work with parents on is that no, these are actual, these are actual symptoms in your child. And just because they sort of come out looking a little fake, it doesn't mean they don't experience them as really intense. Hmm. Yeah. And I would say too, with girls, their obsessive interests tend to be within sort of normal range for what you would expect girls to like. So girls on the spectrum typically tend to like things like horses, animals, animals, to feel much more comfortable with animals than people dolls cuz they're learning social play through play with dolls mm. where where boys maybe aren't trying to do that whereas with boys you know I can think of a 2-year-old I work well I didn't work with him when he was 2 but a story his mom told me of when he was 2 that she couldn't get him to soothe or fall asleep at night unless she read to him from a medical textbook <laughs> <laughs> right and so with boys we often see this like i am interested in middle eastern history from the 1800s to the 1840s and they tend to be maybe a little more specific (laughs) or a little odd although we do see a lot of sort of quote-unquote normal interests like dinosaurs and minecraft interestingly what we find with girls also is that they tend to be drawn to like the theater because that's where they learn how to show emotions interesting i know it's so fascinating so I feel like that happens a lot and also another piece with girls is that typically when with boys on the spectrum they'll come in and say I don't have any friends or they'll say I'm friends with everybody everybody likes me cuz there's that lack of self-awareness that maybe kids don't like them mm-hmm. and with girls girls are I think are a little more forgiving of sort of quirkiness and usually girls on the spectrum have one friend or a best friend who shares their interests and so I'll have parents come in to me and say, well, well, my kid can't be autistic because she has a friend. And I'm like, well, well, autism is a spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of people with autism have friends. Lots of people don't. And there's a lot of in between. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those are some of the things that get in the way of the diagnosis. Um, And I think there's just a general belief that girls can't have it and don't have it. So people aren't looking
0: for it. Same with ADHD, I would imagine.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because with ADHD, some of the gender differences are, you know, girls tend to be less hyperactive and more inattentive, whereas boys, again, are sort of louder and more hyperactive and impulsive, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right. So interesting. Do you feel like, I mean, it seems to me that there's a growing awareness of these differences. So do you feel like, People are getting more tuned in to recognize things. Do you feel like the criteria for how assessments are made is going to change to be more inclusive or to recognize girls? I hope so. You
1: know, I, I often find myself teetering on this edge of if I were to go by the DSM five, which is what I'm supposed to do, this, this girl does not make criteria for an autism spectrum disorder. Or she's sort of like, like what you said with your experience with Asher, she's kind of on the borderline, but. Then there's the question of is it valuable to give the person a label or not, and sometimes it's really valuable to have that label, and sometimes it's not.
0: Let's get into that. That was my next yes. question. Let's what yes. is what is the value of a diagnosis? Kind of pros oh, and cons. Yes. I know it's a whole That's show. Pandora's
1: but. box. <laughs> Pandora's box. So diagnoses exist for good intent, right? So the idea is. A diagnosis is a shared language that professionals and parents and and individuals can use to talk about something that's really specific. And, and if we know what it is, then we know how to treat it, or we hope we know how to treat it. Right? There's still a lot of fledgling, you know, attempts to treat a lot of these things. So that shared language is essential. I think you had mentioned, and you've mentioned in some of your podcasts, you know, getting services is a huge reason for having a diagnosis. So. If you're going to parent in a traditional way in the sense of my kid's going to go to public school, my kid's going to, you know, go to Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts, my kid's going to be on the sports team or on the robotics team and kind of be more in that mainstream world, I think a diagnosis really helps because getting something like an IEP with an educational diagnosis of autism or ADHD would help the teacher's to understand what they're seeing, to understand, okay, this kid is not just loud and annoying, he literally can't stop moving his body. So let's accommodate him by allowing him to stand up during class or allowing him to sit on a little bouncy ball, or allowing him to touch a little fidget toy. A lot of times, teachers who I think are so undervalued and underpaid and have the hardest job, almost Mm -hmm. the hardest job there is, second to parenting, They don't know what they're seeing and it's easy for them to conclude, especially if they're burned out, that this kid is just trying to push their buttons. And a lot of the times differently wired kids just don't learn in the same ways. So if you're trying to get an IEP, you want to have, you have to have an autism diagnosis Mm -hmm. or an ADHD diagnosis. If you want to know what kind of treatment to do, let's say you're doing talk therapy with somebody who's on the spectrum. And that might be great for them because they can come in and talk about dinosaurs for 45 minutes, but they may actually really be needing needing to learn social skills. So identifying what it is can help you figure out what to do about it. I also would say specific to children and adults on the spectrum, because I am also getting an influx in my practice of adults. Because as Asperger's becomes more prominent in the media, on TV shows, on the news, people are starting to go, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I'm 56 years old and this is me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think, especially with people on the spectrum, there is this desire for knowledge, this desire to categorize things. And there is this real relief in knowing I'm not just wacky and quirky. I am this and I belong to this group. And my whole life, I never belonged to a group. And so now I get to call myself an Aspie and, 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 I love that term because it's so positive. It's so affirming and people love to call themselves that. And so my sense, especially with people on the spectrum, especially as they get older, there's this relief of, oh my gosh, that's what it is. That's why I've never known how to laugh at, at a joke that I don't find funny. That's why I don't understand what these kids are talking about when they're making metaphors or Being sarcastic. And I think there's so, I think there's a relief sometimes in the diagnosis.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I know that was the case with Asher when we told him, it was kind of like, okay, it makes sense now, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) Uh
1: huh. And he was probably like, duh, I know that.
0: (laughs) I knew I had superpowers.
1: Exactly. I like to say that people with autism are saving the planet
0: because I really take that perspective. I don't, have you read Neurotribes? I'm embarrassed to say that I have it and my son has read it and I haven't gotten through it yet. It's so great. I'm gonna, I know you're so busy. I'm going to just encourage you to read it because
1: really sort of the whole point of that book is showing, you know, these are genes that have um, survived throughout history and there are ways in which we created environments where people with autism could thrive instead of be outcast. So that's where I say people are changing the planet with autism, because what they used to do back in the day, and they talk about this in the book is they used to let people just go in the shed for three days and work out their theorems. And, and you know, three days later, Einstein is an amazing scientist who couldn't
0: make it through mainstream school. Right. So, hmm. yeah. So interesting. Yeah, he was very stoked about that book. I, yes. There was a lot of like, hey, mom, listen to this or Skyping mm-hmm. me quotes from the book. All right, I will I will try to pick it up this weekend. What would you say then are, if there are any downsides to having a label? And I know there are a lot of parents who are listening who may be concerned about telling their child what's going Mm -hmm. on with them because they don't want them them to feel worse Mm -hmm. about themselves. Or, you know, obviously, there are stigmas associated with certain diagnoses. So Mm -hmm. in, in your opinion, what, what's the downside?
1: Yeah, I think there are a lot of downsides. And I I think what it really kind of comes down to is readiness to know. Because I have had a few people not come back for results. And that's very, very rare. But I, I recently had a mom come in who was just wonderful with a really precocious child that I pretty much thought might be on the spectrum, but wasn't sure. And she refused to have me even give her some forms to even look at it. Because she couldn't sort of manage the idea that that could be a reality and that's fair people are where they are and they don't always want to know mm-hmm. so i think the drawback is that if an outside party is pushing the need for a diagnosis but the family doesn't want it or the child you know doesn't want to know or isn't interested in changing i think that that can be potentially shaming for people mm-hmm. or of course people have a lot of stigma around that you know i also think labels can sometimes become excuses for people I see this probably, especially with kids with ADHD is they'll go around and say, oh, that's just my ADHD. I can't clean my room. And I'm like, well, you can, you're going to need a certain kind of help and a certain kind of parenting to clean your room. But don't, don't tell me just because you have ADHD that you can't mm-hmm. do these things. So I think sometimes people use it as an excuse. Mm-hmm. I think also if you're going to be a, Non traditional parent from the start, you know. I think about my brother. He's got a one and a half year old who is an absolute delight, and she's she appears to be neurotypical, um, but who knows? And they have sort of a Waldorf set up in their house where she learns as she learns. She taught herself how to potty train. She's one of those kids, mm-hmm. and they're gonna do Waldorf schooling. and And if she were to have an issue, they wouldn't. Which is ironic because this is a family member of mine, but they wouldn't seek help. That's just not the way they do things. And that's totally fine because they live in a community where diversity and neurodiversity don't need to be labeled. They're just accepted, um, which is really wonderful. Where do
0: they live? (laughs) I know. You're like, where can we go? Ashland, Oregon? Oh, yes, I have been there for the Shakespeare Festival. It's a great community. Yeah, I could totally see that.
1: I would say Missoula, where I live is a lot like that. But it's, it's just not quite as accepting in the same ways. And, and Ashland is a smaller town. But so I would say if you're going to go the non traditional route, if you're going to homeschool,
0: if you're going to do Waldorf, there may not be a need to diagnose.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey, there, it's Debbie.
1: I think what happens as people get older, especially on the spectrum, is that they have always felt different and they, and it helps them to know why. So there's that benefit. But then I would say there's a lot of kids on the spectrum who go, oh, my IQ is 126. And then they go to school and tell everybody, I have Asperger's. And my IQ is 126. <laughs> and that's a downside too. Because, right. <laughs> right. And so I actually don't usually give kids any numbers. Mm-hmm. And it's always the Aspies that want their numbers because mm-hmm. they're always really high. But oftentimes there's something that's not quite clicking as much. And so, and they, they don't really want to hear that part of it. So I, I'm very gentle in the feedback that I give kids, especially mm-hmm. depending on their age.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, the IQ piece, when we had Asher assessed, we had had his IQ testing done separately, because of schools we were looking at. And, you know, he was a kid who taught himself to read when he was two. So we knew that he was a bright child, you know. Mm -hmm. And so and we were still looking at kind of a traditional public uh, private school route that catered to gifted kids. And so, but then when we did take him in to get assessed, we were told that IQ wasn't factored in at all as part of their assessment, which we found very confusing because, interesting. you know, according to things we had read about highly gifted mm-hmm. kids, a lot of the characteristics that gifted kids have can also mm-hmm. overlap with other things that are going on. So it's interesting to hear that you that's a piece of your diagnosis.
1: It's a huge piece. And you know, I do have to say everybody does things differently. And so you know, I'm a clinical psychologist and not a neuropsychologist. So clinical psychologists, I don't do a set battery, whereas neuropsychologists often or clinics sometimes do a set battery. This is what we do. This is how we look at it. I really look at the whole person and say, what does this person need? What, do... And then as I'm going, I start to pull more forms out and say, I'm sorry, mom and dad. I have to make you fill out some more forms because mm-hmm. now I'm wondering about this and they're kind of rolling their eyes at me. But I think that thoroughness is important. I think it's hard to say that a IQ test isn't helpful because for me, even in ob- the observation part of an IQ test, how does a child do with shifting task demands? How does a child do mm-hmm. when you ask them to pay attention in certain ways? How does a child do with non-preferred tasks? Is the child interrupting the test to talk about you know the history of physics all of those things are really
0: yeah it's information
1: it's all information yeah. um and and the giftedness i mean if i just went and if, but then conversely if i just went on iq i might miss something so i had a kid once it was telling me, you know, about the space-time continuum very articulately, and he was probably six. <laughs> and it's <laughs> awesome. I know he was in, he is an incredible little guy, and he has an amazing, amazing set of parents, and so I know he's going to be okay. But we came out to take a lunch break, and he looked at me and he said, "Hey, you know that stuff that they have with the noodles and the cheese?" And I said, "Oh, macaroni and cheese." And he said, "Yeah, I want that for lunch. Can you make me some?" And I said, well, buddy, you know, I don't have mac and cheese at my office. I'm not a restaurant. You know, I have I have (laughs) snacks here. But and then there was a huge fit for 45 minutes about me not having (laughs) mac and cheese and the poor mom. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you don't need to apologize. This is information. Yeah, Totally. (laughs) So I guess I guess my point um, you know is that yeah, you can't just go on one thing, but so much of what we do we do find within those little those moments that aren't even actually part of a standardized test and they're so telling right. so so I think those parts are just as interesting as the others.
0: I have a question about and I don't I don't don't actually know maybe what my question is, but I want to hear your thoughts on this and then I will'll yep. we'll wrap up. Okay. I know that when we were looking to get Azure assessed, you know, we were living in Seattle, which is a very progressive city. And there's a lot going on a lot of alternative education paths. We still had months and months of waiting lists. And people there, there was so there were so few places that were available, the waiting lists were long. And I was like, but there's such a need, clearly. I mean, there's so many of us, and then it's so Uh expensive, you know, yeah. What is your take on that? Like, And how? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 Thoughts, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So here's,
1: you know, uh, we're, just to kind of flip that, just to kind of tilt that a little bit, I, I would say I live in Missoula, Montana, where we don't have anything like that. We have a few alternative schools and private schools that are wonderful. We have an international school where kids um, learn Spanish. We have a really creative, individualized learning kind of school. And we have sort of a group homeschooling network, but there, this is a huge problem is that we are really lacking in resources. And there are some states, it sounds like there there were some things in Washington. I know Utah has some schools for kids with autism. We don't have any of them in Montana. And so this is sort of the golden question that parents ask me, how do I teach my kid? And not everybody is willing to or able to do the homeschooling thing you know teach to their interests but i couldn't agree with you more that there's such a huge need and if that was sort of my realm in life i would i wish that i would have time and resources to build schools for kids with autism because and i i actually believe that really this is going to fall on the public schools where they're going to really need to consider having like sensory friendly buildings and and those kinds of things mm-hmm. because You know, if the statistics are true and one and two people are going to be on the spectrum by 2050,
0: really, we have got,
1: yes, that's the, that's the latest statistic. Wow. Wow. Yes. Yes. That's every other person. That's incredible. If we are going to still try to fit the square peg in the round hole, which already doesn't work. No. So yes, we need private schools, but I think it's going to have to fall on the public schools to create. Autism friendly, at least classrooms, if not buildings, um, and then and then you're going to have people sort of who are going to argue that inclusion is more important. And in some ways, inclusion is very important. But ideally, and I think you've probably, I would I would think you would agree with this is just that the best way for these kids to learn is to learn based on their interests and their passions, mm-hmm. and that's. That's how they'll learn science and math and reading and writing is through the things that make them passionate and the things that will help them change the world. And that's not, it's not set up that way in the public school system. No. So it's the million dollar question. And I think that's the next realm of what really needs to change.
0: Well, I like your idea. I think you should get started on planning that school. And just let yeah. me know when you have it up and running. And uh, cool. <laughs> and then you're going to move
1: move back to the state. Sure. Well, or maybe I, I might need to move there with everything that's happening in this country. No. <laughs> that is a whole other episode. Too. A whole other question.
2: <laughs> in,
0: just one last question too about the assessment process itself. What is in in your experience? You have a long waiting list for people to do this, mm-hmm. or any advice for parents who want to navigate this process who are like, okay, we needed an assessment, now what? How, how yeah, can they go tough. about doing that?
1: It's really tough. There's, I don't know that there are any sort of forums that say in your state, here's where you should go. So it's sort of a word of mouth kind of thing of uh, where you live and sort of who does what. And like I said, I get most of my referrals just from folks in the community since I've been working and living in this community since 1999 in the mental health field. But you know, it's tough because it's frustrating for parents because they've been waiting for six years to know what's going on with their kid. And now they have to wait three to six more months to get in just to see me. And then they have to wait three weeks for a report. And then they may not want to hear what I have to say. (laughs) So it can be very frustrating. And sometimes, you know, um, depending on the insurance, some insurances, most insurances are really pretty good about covering psych testing. But I have to tell you that there, there was one um, insurance company that just told me they don't cover any autism codes. Which wow! I said, who can I call? Who can I call? <laughs> because yeah. I need to talk to someone and talk to you about the statistics and the fact that this is a very real thing that's not going away. And there's a lot of people who need help. Mm-hmm. So I would say that it really kind of depends on your local resources. And and one good way to maybe get connected to that is through, like you were saying, through some universities. They often have counseling centers, things like that. We have um, a place called the Child Development Center here in Missoula. Um, Other mental health centers often do those kinds of testing, so that's usually where. And sometimes the school will do the testing Mm -hmm. if you request it directly.
0: Yeah, I don't think our insurance covered our testing at the time, but maybe things Mm. have changed. And
1: well, I accept mostly insurance. I would say that the the great bulk of my practice is insurance, and Medicaid covers it. Private insurances, I think the only uh, insurance that I've had trouble with is. Tricare, United Healthcare, which is government insurance for government employees or veterans. Wow, it's really sad, and also, I would say nobody's covering the autism code for adults, which is a whole other conversation because it's always been considered kind of a childhood disorder, but this is not something differently wired doesn't go away, right,
0: <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. So interesting. Wow. Yes. Okay, we have this has been fascinating for me. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I really do have the best job. I just get to talk to do. interesting people and get all my questions answered. And Aww. luckily, it benefits all my listeners. So just thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all this with us. And I would absolutely love to have you back on the show to, to talk more. I have a feeling this is going to be a very listened to episode and, um, and we'll see what kind of feedback we get, but thank you again for, for coming on the show today.
1: Thanks again so much for having me. And thank you for doing this. When I found your website, I got so excited to know that there are people like you out there really trying to make a difference and it is making a difference. So just know that.
0: Yay. Thank you. Yay. (laughs) You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, including links to the resources Melissa and I talked about, visit the show notes page at tiltparenting.com slash session 60. If you like what we're doing through this podcast and you'd like to support us, we would welcome your help. There are two easy ways to support us. One is to become one of our funders through our Patreon campaign, which allows listeners to make a small contribution towards the production of our episodes. You can find out more at patreon.com slash Tilt The other is to leave an honest review or rating for the podcast on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it really helps us get more visibility in the crowded podcast space. Thank you so much for considering helping us. And as always, thanks again for listening. For more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com.